Welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast. This week, your sponsor is me. If you wish to help caffeinate this podcast, then you can use the link in my bio at buymeacoffee.com to supply me with a coffee or two or three. Depends how generous you feel. This podcast takes a lot of work, a lot of energy, and that's supplied by my caffeine intake. And if you wish to support the podcast, then please donate me a coffee. Um, I've only got you for an hour. Let's get right into it now that we have crystal clear audio. Uh, <laughs> I did introduce you there as a doctor. How does that feel to still be kind of labelled as being Dr. Yusuf Smith? How does it feel when you, you hear that? Good question. Because being a doctor is is a it's it's a label or a stamp. And so it's kind of an achievement that you unlock, but it's not necessarily a role. So although PhD is the proper doctor, and I'm I'm a medical doctor, so not, you know, that from an academic or um point of view, I'm not the the <laughs> the, the, the clever type. But it's yeah it, it, it it's an interesting label because i think even if you get struck off you're still doctor you just can't practice 100% and that leads me on to like a question that i always love it's my favorite question that i ask a guest and it's not because i'm too lazy to do research or do a pre record bio or anything like that but i ask i always ask who is Yusuf Smith today in 2022 or who is mm. XYZ today in 2022 because I think it's a really great or useful way for the guests to truly represent themselves in the way that they show up in the morning the way they look in the mirror so if I were to ask you who is Yusuf Smith today in 2022 how would you self-describe yourself? Yusuf Smith is just consciousness puppeting this meat sack that you see in front of you manifesting as a an illusion of an individual self, but no, it, it, I'm, I basically run, I co-run propane fitness with my business partner, Johnny, who you've had on a couple of years ago. And I currently help people to gain muscle, lose fat on one arm of the business. And on the other arm, we help coaches and trainers to move online, to go from an offline offer to packaging their expertise into an online program. So those are the two hats that I wear. The The doctor thing comes from the fact that I have been working as a doctor for the last three years in local hospital. I came to the end of my contract. Propane was a business that I've been running since 2008, 2009 with Johnny. And because of that, it it's it hit the kind of critical momentum point where it needed my full attention and there was a natural um natural crossroads in the career and the obvious choice for me was to go full blast into propane one of the things the listeners might not know about me is that recently from a severely de- developmental point of view i went speed dating for the experience nice. To understand how I wanted to show up and to use that intimate yet intense environment to see what came natural to me when I wanted to self-describe myself. And as the listeners might know, I am a 24-year-old, I'm a male, I'm, like, I'm white, that's self-descriptors, but I'm also a management consultant or an advocate for social mobility or a podcast host. And over time, based on the reaction of the other people, I would tailor 
how I would describe myself. Mm. So if you were to reflect maybe a year ago, uh, whilst you were in employment or just over a year ago, how differently do you think you would describe yourself or in what order would you describe your titles maybe a year ago based on? Uh, so I'd love something? to come back to the speed dating thing, but actually for me, so usually because of how all-consuming clinical medicine is, it becomes not just your job, but your identity. In my case, because propane had preceded that and that I took up most of my time and I was really just burning the candle at both ends. And so I very much saw medicine as my side hustle and I saw propane as the main hustle. So perhaps that's a bit of a, um, a flip on its head with that. So I didn't struggle with much of an identity shift from kind of retiring as a doctor because it was always the side hustle. Now, speaking of that, your speed dating experience is fascinating because you get a two minute slot to, depending on whether you, you're thinking from a marketing head or from a identity head, that you can split test multiple openers and multiple ways that you describe yourself. And interestingly, I was at a stand up comedy night a couple of weeks ago. I sat in the front row just as like facing my demons. I thought, okay, if I sit in the front row, I'm going to get bullied. So let's let's just lean into this and the guy was like oh so what uh, what do you do and I, I i remember thinking well i can't i can't say doctor because i'm i'm not working as one what do i say i was like well i i do marketing consulting for online coaches and he was like that made no sense to me don't know what you're talking about and i remember thinking like wow that's it that's the one advantage of having a one word like if you say accountant doctor or nurse lawyer something like that it everyone knows what that is and they can put you in that box and it makes them feel comfortable and then they can move on so i guess you've got the opportunity if you're speed dating having multiple two minute split tests to either try something that makes people go oh that's interesting like tell me more about that or or you can just say i'm this and then they go okay fine and move on depending on how interesting you feel that pathway is so you're kind of either opening the door or closing it and saying no let's talk about me as a person rather than what I do as a job. 100%. Uh, one thing that I found interesting from that experience, an anecdote that I can build to life is I would always say when they asked me, what do you do for a living? I would say I'm an accountant, management consultant and podcast host. And their next question was always, who have you had on the podcast or mm-hmm. what is your podcast about? And what I think is the causation of that is because accountancy and management consultancy are so nuanced they're scared to be caught out when asking questions about it <laughs> yeah but podcasting is so universally understood that it's so much easier for them to uphold the conversation around that and maybe if you introduced yourself in a similar vein where you when you were in employment you would sh- shine the light on working in the fitness industry that gives them more options or more threads to pull when asking you questions if you were to introduce that part of yourself before the general practitioner said yeah from like a conversational point of view it's it's about laying out multiple threads and and letting them giving them the option to to pull on them rather than just flexing and so if you say you know you have a, a range of options and then depending on their interest or their expertise they can kind of go with you and and join that dance yeah. Whereas I think as a doctor, it's often like if it's at a party, like, oh, will you, will you have a look at this rash on my ball sack? Like that's, that's one of the, <laughs> maybe not that, but it usually <laughs> follows with someone trying to, and, and that's just, you know, because if you're in health or healthcare or medicine or fitness or whatever, it's so universal and everyone's struggling with it in some way that everyone's got a problem and they see it as an opportunity to 
to ask you a question about it. Uh, and first of all, I want to start going to some of the parties that you go to, Yusuf, where that's a conversation open. <laughs> um, that, given that chat, when you were working um, in, in medicine and you were um, working with propane, similarly, you said that the medicine was your side hustle. But mm-hmm. when you were showing up at that moment in time, in conversation, at parties, how would how would you have prioritized which title you put first? The reason I ask that is because when you say you work in the fitness industry, there's such a wide-ranging spectrum of where you can sit on that. Like You know what it's like these days. A lot of online personal trainers get quite a bad rep because yeah. the market's so saturated. So did you feel from a signaling point of view that you were more inclined to show up as the, the, the doctor opposed to the fitness industry professional? Depended on the audience, but you are right that sadly, because there's no barrier to entry into being an online fitness coach, for example, there's all those memes that you see of like loses three pounds next day, posts on Instagram, <laughs> online coaching available, $50 a month. It's it's exactly that. Like anyone can can set up as that. And because of that, there's no accountability. There's no kind of recourse for wacky advice. Whereas as a doctor, you you are immediately, because you have to protect your professional registration, and I imagine, well, it, it is the same with accountancy and with with any protected profession, you can't just set up and start fully going off, off the rails and giving out wacky advice because there is a consequence to it. And this is why you end up with confidently wrong people who are unqualified and suffer from the Dunning-Kruger effect on the one side. And then you've got the people who are qualified to comment on that very thing, and they will reserve judgment because they don't have the full context. And if they're offering advice online, it's that their liability doesn't cover it. It's not one of their clients, so they're not involved in it. It's it's such an interesting like reverse incentive to for truth to come out. I love how profound this chat has become already, Yusuf. <laughs> Um, I really do. I want to ask another question around kind of your audit trail of identity. You've been on, um, I don't want to introduce you as Chris Williamson's mate because that's not who you are, but you've been on his, you've been on his podcast since its onset and that's grown and behemoth growth. You have your own YouTube channel, which has such a large following and dates back many years. You have your Twitter following. Therefore, loads of people online and I asked Johnny the exact same question lots of people online know so much about you but you don't know they exist how does that make you feel having such a large audit trail of your identity uh, and that being so easily interrogated um, especially in this kind of cancel culture woke society mm-hmm. you know luckily we, the stuff we talk about is quite dry so it tends not to not to kind of press buttons like like Chris's podcast does and that's part of why he grows he's grown so much because a lot of what he does is really riding the line of what's acceptable to say and bringing on people with controversial opinions. Luckily as well, when you have a channel, podcast, a Twitter account or whatever, you're posting a sanitized version of yourself with a particular goal. And in our case, it's just traffic and conversions. So it's like, I, I don't worry so much about that stuff, but I'm also not a very kind of controversial person in my, in my opinions. And that's both publicly and privately. Uh, you know, I, I like to think I'm relatively balanced <laughs> in the way that I would approach things. But you also mentioned that when people come up to you in the street, 
or people have a one-sided relationship with you. I'm sure you're already already starting to kind of experience that. Um, and last time I was in Glasgow, uh, I went to I went to like a it was a waitrose actually to get um, to get some chocolates for uh, Gavin McKinney and Colin um, Campbell for like going to be on their podcast. And someone the the person at the checkout was like, "Do I know you?" And I was like. <laughs> I don't think so. She's like, I'm sure you you're familiar. I was like, no, I, I, I was like, oh well. I mean, is it possibly podcast YouTube channel? She was like, oh yeah, Chris Williams. And and so it was through Modern Wisdom that she'd kind of joined the dots there, which is which is more common just because Chris has got more of a a reach than than we do. Um, but I do find that fascinating that like people are often quite they have a sense of familiarity because you've been the one talking to them during their commute for several weeks or months. And you, you've got the kind of, but it's asymmetrical. Uh, and I think that's awesome. Like the, the ability to, to leverage your relationship building. Yes, it's only unilateral and maybe in the future they'll find a way to, to kind of make that a, a two-way thing at scale. But what a way to build a relationship, to build trust, and then to sell a service or a product off the back of it. It follows the kind of principles of that article. Is it 1,000 True Fans? Mm. Which basically says you can build an intimate relationship with 1,000 True Fans, and because of your your emotional tie to that audience, you can essentially sell them anything. They, they believe in you and your mission and your values more so than your, your kind of identity, and I, I think that's actually quite a good example that, that, that brings that to life. And I feel like I'm, I've known you. Like, I wasn't it was so easy to prepare for this podcast because I have had you in my ears for two <laughs> years. We have mutual friends. Um, Amazing. So. Well, he, and, and that's, it's a good point about the thousand true fans thing. Cause that's, it's also, it's not just a, a kind of take relationship because someone listening to your podcast, they've trusted you with their attention. And so you then have a duty to them to provide them with objectivity and, not to shill crap products and to to be you know, to to provide value to them and to deliver each each week as well. So it is certainly a um, a two way thing. And I've I, I'm sure you've seen some of the kind of public thinkers over the last year or so, particularly catalyzed by COVID, have become drunk with influence, and they start to just push buttons for engagement's sake and not actually pursuing truth anymore and they end up kind of becoming the thing that they were rallying against which is always an interesting effect i think we can think of a few figures when you (laughs) when you eliminate that um Mm. not to mention their names and i think that's the hard part in fact when you go down that model is that you become and i I said this when i was a guest on fire festivals andy king's podcast um nice he and he, he's such a prime representation of this is that when you become that level, you become less of a meat sack with consciousness and experiences and feelings. You become a representation of ideas or a, a symbol of something. Uh, and I'm scared at some point, and I'm not sure if you feel the same, that you might become become that for better or for worse. It, I, so, so this is where, and I would encourage anyone listening to to listen to the episode with Johnny because he sees this stuff so clearly and a principle that he lives by is that you've got to put the Facebook pixel somewhere 
And what does so, that mean? So what that what that means is that the, the Facebook Pixel in kind of marketing in the internet marketing world is the the KPI or the 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 behavior that you're looking to track and optimize for in the Facebook ads and in the funnel. So that could be on the thank you page of the the checkout um, link. So what you want to do is make sure that as many people as possible land on that page following payment, and that's what you're tracking the journey up until that point. Basically, it's setting the north star somewhere. And the point is, you have to put the pixel somewhere. So you have to set your goal in some direction. And so you've just got to be very deliberate about where you set that goal. So if it's, I just want a million followers, or I want as many followers as possible, that's potentially a risky move because Goodhart's law states that when the value becomes the goal, or when, when the metric becomes the goal, it ceases to become an accurate, accurate metric. If you were to say, I want to lose weight, and that was like, you gave that instruction to a beta version AI, it would be like, okay, well, you need to just cut off your legs and maybe cut off your head and, you know, just to lose as much weight as possible. But then you've kind of lost the point. Like the, the goal wasn't really to lose weight. The goal was to look better and feel better. So it's the point that you have to get as close as possible to the the true goal. Otherwise, if you start gaming the numbers, you could end up in completely the wrong place. Does that make sense? 100%. And from a kind of self-identity point of view, and that's the kind of the thing that we started speaking about, when you optimize for numbers and engagement by following a route that is contentious and inauthentic, you probably have an inner conflict of not knowing who you are and how to show up into, into the world. Mm. So yeah. to go, this has been such a profound intro chat. To follow Absolute Development by David Still, we need to take it back to young uh, Yusuf Smith. Do you remember the moment in time where you made the choice or when that choice was presented to you of what career or academic route you were going to go to go down? Yeah, so the age I feel bad for for kids nowadays because the, there's so much data to have to try and synthesize and process, and you're given a a real you, you have to choose your your path so early. So at the age of sixteen, I guess in Scotland you get you don't even get as much time as that. You you know you got to pick your GCSEs, which then inform what A levels you do or what hires you do, and and therefore your university choice and and your career path and all of that. And I was from classic Egyptian family. My dad had like you 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 must be doctor or engineer or lawyer, and that's the three options. Um, and actually, no, he he was a little bit more liberal than that. But the pathway was very much like you need to go and get a, a degree and do the graduate thing and and all of that. Um, partly because of the kind of prestige and everything else rather than for for anything you know that there's always a vicarious pride that parents have and, and and all of that so i didn't really know what i wanted to do i went in i, I thought well i'm good at maths so so i'll do that did maths and business as a degree started working for an investment bank because i thought well that's just the um that's what you do and then very quickly realizing that for me, the idea of like two monitors and Excel and being such a abstracted part of a large company where the stuff that I do day to day doesn't doesn't actually make any sense in its 
in itself it's only in a very you know it's you, you're contributing to the kind of the the data integrity of the the or the the processing of the derivatives trades for this particular portfolio which but you know it, it was too abstracted for me to kind of get any kind of satisfaction from and intangible you couldn't see it yeah exactly they kind of very intangible you're right so for me running parallel to that was coaching people which was just sharing my expertise and applying the the body of um of research and the evidence base to optimizing somebody's physiology or improving producing a result in someone and therefore that applies very logically into clinical medicine as well you, the difference is you're taking rather than someone from normal state to an optimized state you're taking someone from a pathological diseased state into normal if you can at best <laughs> so so they're kind of the same spectrum but just different labels is that that kind of for me because i had to i'm a i'm a simple man and had i had to kind of have someone physically in front of me and see the improvement that we're making in them that made a lot more sense to me as a as a career choice i've one of the things i've loved hearing you speak about is the and i'm not sure if it's your own concept but it's the concept of the four currencies did you mm. discover that or become aware of that during your asset management career or was that subsequent to that yeah so there was a book that i read during asset management and and thanks for for correcting me there i normally say investment bank actually because of the speed dating thing that if you say asset management people are like what's that asset management you're like no 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 like, and and it's, i know it's not quite investment banking but it's the closest thing that people yeah so <laughs> um the four currencies is I, as far as i know it is something that i landed on but um just the idea that when you select any job or life path or lifestyle choice there is a different combination a different assortment of money freedom of time freedom of location and impact or satisfaction and different jobs provide different amounts of each of these things and so depending on your preference and your temperament you might need more or less of a certain one to feel satisfied in that job and so if you're living someone else's life you're going to be running up against the the friction of that because you might you might realize that actually the world wants you to chase money but beyond a certain point it's not satisfying to you and especially if you're not if you haven't got time to see your kids and you're out of shape and you're erectile dysfunctional because you're so stressed and because you're so overweight and because of all the you know the, the, this kind of downstream effect of trying to optimize for one thing similar to you've got to put the facebook pixel somewhere so that along with the actual kind of i guess the impetus to change career was reading a, a book which apparently i'm not allowed to mention anymore someone someone said it's uh, it's to on PC nowadays, uh, called The Way of the Superior Man by David Dada. And that just had a chapter in, in it saying there is a point in every person's development as their purpose moves outwards like layers of an onion. And so the outer layer can become shriveled and old and it falls away. And if you try and hold on to that old purpose, it's like it, it's it's dead. And People are going to see that. People are going to sense that inauthenticity. And so you have to move with it. And so it was a combination of that. And also the other chapter was live as though your father was dead. The idea being we are often living in the expectation of our culture, our religion, our parents, 
rather than what our purpose is. And so seeing that, it was almost like it was actually quite painful to read because it was like, right, well, that's sealed the coffin. I can't continue in that job knowing this. And if I'm a good boy and I do my work really well and I progress in my career, I'm going to end up like that guy sat at that desk over there who's my senior manager and he's miserable. He's on like an extra 10, 20K, but he's miserable. So I need to make a change now rather than later. And I guess the the reward culture in a place like that is if you're a really good boy and you work really hard, then you're rewarded, but with more work, oh, uh, yeah. it seems. <laughs> and when I think about those four currencies, it seems if I were to make an assumption that the one that mattered most to you was the the fourth one that you mentioned about um, having impact, having doing the right thing, um, leaving somewhat of a legacy or having create an improvement for someone that you exist beside, which obviously seems to have been satisfied both within your uh, medicine career, but with coaching. So do you think that is something that's been a golden thread um, since that realization? Yeah, it has been. You always, you always want the thing that you have the least of as well, though. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of dynamic. And certainly at two in the morning, being paid the equivalent of seven pounds an hour, you know, doing fecal disimpactions in hospital, all you're thinking is, I just wish I had a bit more control over my time. I wish I had just a bit more freedom to just have the day off. And and so, you know, what, whatever's the most squeezed is always going to be, and, and that's, I guess that's sort of how Maslow's hierarchy works, isn't it? Or if you gave someone all the food they wanted, but you said you can't have any water, very quickly it doesn't matter about how good the food is because they're just so thirsty or vice versa 100 percent. i my last episode was with um scotland's first billionaire sir tom hunter who's now a, one of the largest philanthropists in the uk um collaborates with bill clinton on some developmental initiatives um and he comes from a very kind of working class mining town uh, a few miles away from me where he suffered poverty and uh, other likes uh, as a child so and I, I came to him with this um, concept of the millionaire's menopause where they squeeze that and he burst out laughing I think he was a little bit insulted by it but um, where he squeezed that lemon and then had to fulfill he he, he alleviated all of the hardships and strains of the inner child Sir Tom Hunter experienced and then he had to find out what was next and perhaps when you joined that asset management job you were maybe told that having a financially rewarding career was the best approach. But when you finally squeezed that lemon, you <laughs> realized that you had your own menopause to face, which was um, leaving more of an impact. Yeah, that's, it's an interesting way to put it for sure. Because, and you see it a lot with the origin stories of very wealthy, powerful people is that quite often it's driven from a, a an inferiority complex. Um because they they have to you know they end up working inordinately hard to to counteract that to compensate for it and so it can be a catalyst if it's kind of driven in the right direction i guess the important thing again is set the facebook pixel somewhere cuz if it's just for cash and you're still fundamentally dissatisfied then maybe the the dissatisfaction is the thing to address it's the the happiness and fortunately I know it sounds really glib and really kind of stupid saying it out loud, but the the most enjoyable 
things in life are going out for a meal with friends and going for a walk in nature and being able to to move your body and all these things which are free and we take for granted because we're so wrapped up in our kind of daily work so much to be grateful for i can echo that more yusuf to move on subsequently when you started studying medicine i feel or believe you've described it as like drinking from a fire hose yeah um and you've compared it to like pain management in the past (laughs) i just want to know your own uh pain management techniques and your own information digestion um tips uh on that front yeah anyone who any doctors listening or any medical students will agree with the drinking from a fire hose thing because the curriculum is larger than you can physically put in your brain you just have to stuff in as much as you can until you feel like okay that's that's enough but is it enough i don't know because i don't know what's on the exam and you just have to it and because the field of medicine is so large but you can't just create a kind of restricted curriculum and be satisfied with that um and you know the personality type of the kind of person who goes into medicine is very type a and perfectionist and so you end up on this kind of hamster wheel accelerating more and more tips for doing that i think for me it was raising my standard so i got a first class degree in maths and business um and then went into the the medical degree think like like billy big bollocks thinking like ah oh, you know this will i'll walk through this like I, I know the whole academic thing like i'll be fine and the first term of the first year of med school was more work than the entire four-year MA in maths and business. So um, it really humbled me, just the just the sheer, the kind of data load that you have to take on. So, and it made me realize, you know, we it's, it's the being in an environment where everyone in that class was already the top whatever percent of academic performance, and then, then they're all put in a room, and then you're marked to a curve based on that. So you you, you have to really step up your standards with that and that kind of is a forcing function for improving your efficiency in all those systems the other thing is you can't you have to have a system because and this goes for capture for task management for your second brain for any of this stuff and i know we can you, you had a question about that for later but if you don't have a system that's still a system that's just a crap system (laughs) so you can't avoid it and so you have to have something to be able to handle that inflow of information and for medicine particularly i can't speak for other fields but medicine suits itself very well to on the one hand learning the fundamental principles which conceptually aren't that hard just the you know understanding basic physiology and so on and then for the actual drilling of the data using something like Anki, which is a flashcard creating app. And all all medics will hear that and be like, oh yeah, I am well acquainted <laughs> with Anki. I had about, I think I've got about 10,000 cards in there that I've made for flashcards. That's probably typical of most medics because there's just so many bits of data to memorize. And um, it's just then about doing the reps. So it's pretty, pretty rough, but it's got to be done. It's incredible how the concept of doing the reps, this kind of bro science, this fitness quote, this cliched overused, 
statement, how that is so transferable into every domain, almost doing the reps. And one thing that I appreciate about you, and it's something I've always appreciated about you since listening to you on other podcasts, is the level of personal responsibility that you have, the level of systemization that you have. And that leads me on to think about your day in the life video of working it's when you track your time uh, working for the enhs as a as a jp and most of your day and the bottlenecks that you faced in your day were out with the view with your personal responsibility and out with your control the question i want to ask is before i kind of touch on that kind of nervy subject is what typically was the day in the life of a gp when you were working in healthcare so I, I appreciate you saying that, and I think that's you're giving me too much credit there. But um, I should also clarify that I am, I'm actually an SHO, which is a kind of lower middle grade doctor. So um, a GP would be another three years from the point that ah, I'm at sorry. Okay, training. Sorry. Um, I have done a GP job, which is kind of a like working as a supervised version of a GP, taking kind of easy easier cases. Um, but in terms of hospital medicine, there is a lot of leakage there's a lot of kind of waste in terms of time and that's usually because of the tech um the if you were to count up the amount of time that you spend wrestling with technology or a printer or a fax machine or something in some form it would it really is frightening like and it's just hemorrhaging money and the thing that upsets me about this is that if i was running a company and i'd trained I had a bunch of highly trained staff of nurses and doctors and physios and um, social workers and, and people who have like been through a, a lot of training and a lot of um, grit to get to that point. You invested a lot in them and then you equip them with Windows 95 and fax machines. <laughs> like it just, what, what a waste. Why would you, why would you do that to these staff? And they, they, they're highly industrious and they take it in their stride and they, they just, accept that this is how it is but you're just bottlenecking the total output of the system and then the often the the powers that be will have the audacity to blame the nurses or the doctors for for the, as if it's somehow a clinical competence problem understanding you as much as i understand you i do understand why that gives you so much frustration and when i watched that video yusuf um i watched you oh i kind of watch the kind of notes or the cat sorry there was the calendar that you had on screen mm. and your day went from working in like bereavement to doing admin clerical work to then like phoning families like these tasks are also yes they're under the umbrella of working in a hospital but they're so far apart from each other and i know you know the, the importance of like deep work from a self-identity point of view did you enjoy that sporadic nature of the work because you weren't essentially becoming an expert on one speciality because you were doing so many widespread tasks. How much conflict did that give give you? Hospital medicine in training is just dealing with interruptions. So as you say, you're carrying a vomit bowl and then you're doing a, a cannula and then you're having to call the, the bereavement office and then you you know doing the ward round and then you you get asked several questions by the nurses and then you have to go and like sign a death certificate and verify a death and you know it, it's all very like back to back and then obviously. Um, so surprisingly, the, um, the thing that's most like from, from my perspective, the, the kind of medical practice that's the most kind of pure into, if you were going to go down the deep work, de deliberate practice route 
is obviously surgery because there's a certain amount of cases that need to get done. And so you get a load of reps in doing procedures and you get very good at that. And surgeons are incredibly skilled people. Like they're, they're, they're just so inspirational to work alongside. And also things like A&E for, or for Americans listening, that's the, the ED, the emergency department, because you're actually doing a load of reps that way too. You've maybe got, I don't know, 20 to 60 minutes per patient and you're just picking them up back to back. And so you're getting a lot of, um, a lot of reps in and you're getting quite a close feedback loop as well, because the patient will come in, they'll have a problem. You run some tests, you allocate them to the correct department. And maybe if you follow up on that patient, you might see, ah, okay, my suspicion about, or my, my diagnostic hunch was correct or incorrect. And then you can kind of self-correct your system and refine the process. And that's really what makes a junior doctor, makes the difference between a junior doctor and a senior doctor is they've done thousands of reps and they've refined their model to the point where they can see a patient at the end of the bed and pick up on lots of micro signs that'll shift the, their kind of accuracy in the diagnostic accuracy and the, um, and all that stuff to be more and more accurate over time. And then obviously just honing all of the surrounding soft skills, as you say, of, um, communication with patient and family and, uh, delivering bad news and the, the procedural skill and all that stuff. So I did love the, the stimulation of medicine in that it really grows you as a person because there's so many skills that you're having to deal with at once. Just a shame that you're bottlenecked by systems. From the outside in, it seems like most practicing doctors or most student doctors or SHOs, they do this work because they want to make a difference, do work that matters and effectively improve the health of the people that we interact with every single day. Given the fact that you were met with these clerical duties more than the clinical duties, it seemed by that calendar of events in that video, was that one of the enabling factors for you to leave the NHS or leave uh, medicine or was it the uh, was it the growth and the amount of attention that propane needed you that was the the bigger catalyst that was the bigger one for me um i do I, I did find it i think more frustrating than other people did and i don't know if that's just because i'm really intolerant and impatient <laughs> or if it's because maybe because i and i think what's what's probably more accurate is that propane's just a company of four people plus a couple of freelancers so we're not we're not a big company and if we have a system that's that has a bit of slack in it or is a bit inefficient we just change the software provider that we're using or we just alter the the process and so it so i think i got spoiled by running that for so many years that if there's something that's broken in the system you just go and fix it and what's the problem whereas in such a large um system such as the nhs you can't you can't pause patient care while you test a new operating system or you you update a process. You can't you can't pause live patient care. So everything has the show has to go on, and so it makes it very difficult to roll out these like big user interface updates. And I think as a result, you end up just thinking, well, if we just duct tape all of this together, it's currently just about working. So we better not mess with it. And it feels like you're kind of building a house of cards, and then obviously that combined with budget cuts and um, sort of squeezing over time ends up in a situation where no one really wants to to overhaul anything because it would be so catastrophic. 
What were some of the highlights and lowlights of working during the pandemic, mate? Seeing the... So the initially when it all kicked off, the hospital became really quiet. Like there was a couple of weeks where you'd, you'd get one call, two calls over a night shift, which is unheard of because no patients were coming in. And I remember I was working on a, a stroke ward and for I think for a week or so, we, we had barely anyone coming in with a stroke. And you're like, where are all the strokes? It's not as if just because there's a pandemic that people aren't having strokes. So what's happening is obviously they're sat white knuckling it at home because they're too afraid to come in. So the effect of the media and the scaremongering meant that people with other non-COVID pathologies are not getting treated. So, um, you know, covering the, the cardio take, no no heart attacks coming in for a long time. And, you, and then a few weeks later, you'd see people coming in with heart failure because they'd sat on a heart attack two weeks prior and just been grinding it out at home and then eventually coming in because they're breathless and they've got water on their lungs. So the, there was this kind of effect where almost like you would see in financial markets where that there's a ripple and there's an effect on the sentiment and that pushes the price up and down or pushes the patient volume up and down. And then you end up having to kind of deal with the fallout at the end. So, so that was um, pretty grim. There's also the, you know, my, my brother is very much a kind of COVID denier and was saying, you know, are oh, the, it's not, it, it's, it's all being overblown and the, the doctors are faking the death certificates and they're putting COVID on people's things, even though they, they didn't die of it. And, I, and I'm like, hang on, like I, I'm, I signed the death certificates and, you know, I, I'm literally like the grunt, the, the grunt who does that. And I've, you know, you know I, I've not, I, I just do it in the, this is the, this is the procedure. And, and he's like, oh, well, no, but that's because you're not being paid off. Like the consultants are. And he, he kind of had this like fixed delusion that it, they're out, they're out to get you in some way um, and there was a lot of that and there's a fascinating podcast by sigma nutrition with uh david grimes who is an expert on conspiracy theories and the psychology of conspiracy theories would very much recommend listening to it it's an unbelievable explanation of how people fall into those kind of thought patterns and why they're so attractive and why they're so resistant to being challenged. Even when your brother who literally is a doctor and literally is signing the COVID death certificates says, I'm not doing this. And you still go, Oh no, no, no. Because I've seen on Facebook that <laughs> this happened. And it, it boggled my mind for so long until I heard that podcast. And then you're like, ah, right now I kind of, I get why it's held in place so much. I'm sure the listeners will be searching that up as we speak. I'm definitely going to check that out. That sounds so fascinating. I love that I kind of stuff. Definitely. Your 12 tweet or your 12 reflection mega thread went absolutely viral. <laughs> um, and the way it was written was, in terms of its the semantics and the tone, was upwards, upwardly positive, um, despite having some challenges thrown in there. It seemed to be picked up by media sources everywhere. There was some vitriol. Why do you think that went viral? I think it's because, so the, for context, it was just uh, some musings I wrote about, like some reflections of working on the NHS, working in the NHS. And uh, I, I think it's because it was a topical thing at the time. 
nurse and doctor morale is at an all-time low. Tory sentiment was very low. And so people were, I think the main, a lot of people were retweeting it because the reason people share stuff on social media is because it's a, they, they use whatever they're sharing as a way to a platform to express their opinion and to, to kind of point at that as like, look, see Boris, like, look what this, you've driven this lovely young man to go and do, and you see what you're breaking down the NHS. And, and so there was a lot of that people using it for political signaling. And that wasn't really the intention. Honestly, it was a kind of throwaway thread. And if I'd, if I'd known it would have gone viral, I would have thought a bit more carefully about what I'd written. Um, but yeah, I think people use social media to craft an image of themselves in a certain way, and therefore they share stuff to signal that they are on board with or against a certain thing. And it was a very convenient way for people to kind of throw rocks at their enemies. Now, I'm, I'm kind of politically quite apathetic. I don't think um, it's necessarily the Tories' fault. I think it was just all... who are, it, it, It's a chronic problem. It's not just like it's happened over the last couple of years suddenly. I'm sure they've not helped. But yeah, that's why that went viral. But man, uh, my recommendation, if you, if you post a tweet that goes viral and you're getting hounded, turn off the notifications for the tweet, block the ability for anyone to reply and ignore any media that gets in touch with you because uh, they're parasitic. Wow. You sort of, <laughs> I think that, that, that's incredible. That's incredible for all the right and wrong reasons. And I think that's honestly such great advice. And I hope none of my content gets picked up in the way that that was picked up by the media and the the hoarders who did want to use it as a political weapon i hope i hope that doesn't happen to me or any of the listeners but and the thing is your content online is primarily either humorous or um instructional or um impactful in a positive way um so it's very i'm very sad to hear that some people used it in the wrong way and, I, and i'm cautious that we've spoke all about you as uh, NHS professional for most of this podcast and I don't have you for too much longer now that you are working um, full-time propane I want to ask about the difference between the old model that you used to have and the new model you went from kind of direct to consumer um, PTing or coaching um, individuals for fat loss or muscle gain but now you do more of the market and consultancy side of things what was the key indicator or the key driver for that change and, and and how distinct are those two models yeah good question so actually the a lot of what what happened was we were starting starting off working with people similar to ourselves just that we were maybe a couple of years ahead of in terms of our training journey helping them to gain muscle and lose fat but because of the kind of content we put out was quite physiology heavy and quite nerdy a lot of people that followed the content were were PTs and coaches. And so that was an accidental, just a, a mistake of our niching and, and kind of messaging. So a lot of the time we'd get people sign up for coaching and then often be like, oh, can you also help me with my system to coach my clients as well? And we were like, oh, well, we haven't really got a, a kind of product for that, but we'll help you informally. And then it, it kept happening. And we were like, right, we need to actually document the, the growth of propane and the systems that we use um, because it's applicable to coaches who are teaching other things as well. So the the main thing is actually the journey from doing one-to-one -one coaching, which has a very fixed capacity, really any more than 
20 one-to-one clients starts to really dominate your week. And then you, and then if you start taking on more people than that, you really like you, it detracts from the service that you can give and um, you can't, you're exchanging time for money. You can't increase your, your monthly revenue very much doing that. But Johnny and I didn't know in any other way. And so we just kept taking on more and more clients until we were responding to people at two in the morning and just exhausted. So it was switching from that model to a leveraged group coaching model that, and being able to drop the price, serve more people at scale. We ended up with happier customers because the systems were doing the the coaching for us rather than kind of giving ad hoc responses. We were, it incentivized us to create gold standard responses and, and deliver things in a more systematic way and then build semi-customizable programs and, and all of that stuff around it too. That took our revenues from 2k a month to about 15 to 20k a month pretty pretty quickly from from adopting that model um and serve more people and get better testimonials and get better results and so on so so from doing that we realized ah actually like we'd been doing the online coaching thing kind of the wrong way around um and so it was really that like it's now just we we help we help other coaches to do that and apply that to their model and i know one of the kind of common things that people ask is like well why why would you do that if it's kind of helping the competition now on the one hand like it i don't see them i don't see everyone as competition because everyone helps people solve a different problem and people don't buy coaching they buy coaches and so there are there's enough people on the internet to go around for everyone it's not as if um some you know that oh they're stealing our clients you know and because the model works and because it's something that we can then sell as, as another product in itself, that's, that's become a, a viable thing for us to sell because we've, we've got the validated method for both fitness and for turning that into a coaching system. And to piggyback on, onto that use of his, when I reflect on your four currencies with one being impact, if you are coaching other coaches to coach effectively, and therefore improving the health and fitness of people through an ecosystem opposed to doing it bareback by yourself. If your North Star is to leave a kind of significant impact on, on the health and fitness community or to improve, to lower obesity rates or improve the lifestyle of fitness, then you, by coaching other coaches, are inherently doing that and satisfying that, even if it means they're stealing some one or two customers per year. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. And actually, like a lot of the coaches we work with, they're yoga teachers, stress management coaches, like stuff that we wouldn't, there's no way we, we would be able to um, to help a client with those things because that's not our expertise. So, that, you know, they're helping a much broader impact of people, kind of wider blast radius. But interestingly, Ali Abdul talks about this in relation to being a doctor, that he thinks that, and, and it makes sense that being being a doctor purely because you want to save lives is a selfish way to do that. And he's saying that the if you if that's your metric and it truly is what you want to do and it's not about just the warm fuzzy feeling of having personally saved a life, then you should just get as rich as you can and then donate to the Malaria Foundation because the average doctor saves something like eight lives in their career whereas if you donate 
two thousand pounds to malaria foundation you that that saves one life on average and so you can save many more lives in your with your contribution by doing it through that route it's just a lot less sexy i've heard you speak about that before and i think that is such a wonderful concept by ali the only thing that i would if i was to play devil's advocate with that with that uh and i don't want to steal too much of your your time but i think it was seth Godin when he was on the show or it was maybe through the nba i did with him he brought to life singer's paradox have you heard of singer's paradox no. before so Singer, I think, was some sort of university lecturer, and he posed to his class the scenario where if you were to be passing a pond on the way to class this morning and you were to see a small child drown, would you save them if it meant you were going to be late for class? They all said yes, of course. They then asked if it meant you were going to get dirty um, and your clothes would be wrecked, but there was going to be a crowd of other people watching you do that and praise you for that. Would you do that? <laughs> yes. And then he poses the same, it's basically the same scenario where we have the ability to save lives every single day by donating £20. Or I think you, you, you can probably save lives with $20 somewhere. But he poses the thing, the, the concept that we don't do that because of two factors. It's not instant. And there's no audience to to give us that gratification. So perhaps mm. people like the instantaneous nature of hands-on saving a life. And then I guess within a hospital, you're instantly praised for doing that. I guess by removing yourself from that scenario and just donating money, you don't satisfy those two fulfilling um, criteria. Yeah, our brains aren't really wired for that because the, the ancient brain doesn't understand like 20 pound leaving your bank account <laughs> let alone that 20 pound you know on a, on a on a digital on a on a screen leaving someone and then and then having some kind of effect it's a very like abstracted thing so i can see why the there's you don't exactly get a dopamine hit for doing that yusuf can i have the privilege to ask you one more question oh, I, I don't want to keep you late, yeah, I've, got, I've got five to ten minutes left great fantastic well, I'm going to ask you two in that case um, nice. to steal you for a little bit longer. If you had to provide, and, and for context's sake, Yusuf has appeared on Chris Williamson's Lifehack episode since its origination. He is the guru of optimization, systemization, just overall improving your life. My entire workflow, my entire day-to-day -day has been impacted by Yusuf. I could, if I had more time, I could probably list down all the things that I've implemented because of him. Um, so he's such a purveyor of these these, these life hacks. So, Yusuf, if I were to ask you to provide the listeners with three universal life hacks that you would prescribe them if they're a knowledge worker, what three would come to mind? I'm very pleased it's had an impact on you. Um, so in terms of the basics, don't be sleep deprived. One of the lowest hanging fruit and get an Apple Mac. <laughs> don't be operating on a Windows PC. Just you, You'll see such a return on the the general technical friction that you deal with day to day. The reason I, I'm, I'm saying that as if I'm, as if I'm being flippant, but every couple of second delay that you're dealing with, with technology is multiplied hundreds of thousands of times as you make very kind of repetitive actions on, um, on a computer screen. So micro delays add up to massive attentional delays and it just takes a five second delay of something to be loading that you go, oh, hang on, let me just check my phone while that's, and then boom, you're gone for 10 minutes. 
getting distracted. So I think eliminating friction with that stuff, super important. Within that, you want to get Alfred. It's just, it's if I pull up my stats, I've used Alfred 350 times a day on average since I got it. It's just, well, I've got a full guide on it, so I won't, I won't go into it too much, but it just allows you to automate lots of the little tasks and certainly things like text expansion. If you work, if you're a knowledge worker and you're sending lots of emails with the same sort of text or like sales follow-up messages or um, typical responses and things, you want to have those as templated partly because it comes down to what you said about speed dating, that you you then have a template that you can gradually make little changes to and make improvements to that overall. And then you've got a system that's working much better than just ad hoc responses. And that's the one of the big fundamental drivers of switching from a one-to-one ad hoc coaching model to a leveraged group coaching model, because you can then deliver the best version of yourself at any one point. So those are two. The third thing is you need to have a second brain. Again, if you don't have a, just because you don't have a system, oh, that's still a system. That's just a shit system. So you need a second brain. It could, it doesn't matter what app you use. It could be Evernote. It could be Apple Notes. It could be Obsidian. There's loads of things to choose from. Just pick one that resonates with you the most. But it has to be something that you can capture all of your reading and highlights and journals and everything into and be able to store and retrieve and archive it. Um, And then secondary to that, you need a task management system as well, because most people it's either a pen and paper or it's, um, Oh, I forgot to take the bins out or it's, or it's held in their brain, which is just adding to background stress. So use it. And again, you know, the app doesn't matter. It could be Apple reminders or I use TickTick but something that allows you to get open loops out of your brain and into the system so that you can regain some mental bandwidth and think more clearly. I'll link, you have so many resources on this, on your website, whether it's building a second brain, whether it's Alfred guides, you have interviews with Tygo 40. I'll make sure to link them all below Yusuf. And on your first point about the friction, minimizing the friction between technology, that basically causes you to go on your phone the best life hack that i've gained from i believe it was you is instead of having your phone beside your desk having a book or having a book besides the toilet because if you are in a momentary period of lag instead of picking up a phone at least you're picking up a book i thought that was one of the best life hacks it may have been johnny it may have been your that's an old school one man i'm uh, i'm impressed yeah having like just set the default fallback activity into something that's more productive and everyone's got like a default thing where in a moment of boredom or discomfort or whatever you go and, and usually it's like nowadays just reaching for our phone and swiping through the same like WhatsApp, Instagram, <laughs> Facebook, whatever, Snapchat, um, and swap it with something that you'd actually be pleased with how you spent that time. I love it. Yusuf, this has been amazing. Like I said, I feel like I've known you for so long. Thanks for sparing your time. Thank you for the patience with the technical difficulties at the beginning. Oh man, I, I'm used to the, <laughs> the technical edges myself, but no, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on and I hope it was valuable for people listening. 100%. Where can people find you online, mate? Propane Fitness is where we are. So particularly YouTube and Twitter is where we, and Instagram. Um, but we also have 
some written guides on some of the online coaching stuff. So that's on propane-business.com, propanefitness.com. Um, I'll give you a link, which is just propanefitness.com forward slash development, um, which goes over the kind of stuff that I've that I've mentioned and happy to be contacted if anyone has any questions about specifics from that stuff just shoot us a dm and i'll i'll eventually get back to you thank you yusuf